You are listening to the Tove Podcast. Welcome back to the Tove Podcast. I'm sitting down with my friend Jacob Gluck, the author of the brand new book, Hasidopedia. And so far, Jacob, we've covered a little bit about the history of specifically the Hasidic and the Satmar community mm-hmm. in the United States of America. Uh, you've enlightened us when it comes to the uh, dress, the attire of the Hasidic community. And we've also talked uh, a little bit about the food mm-hmm. of uh, the Satmar community. I want to get into now a little bit of the, the theological beliefs of the community. Um, obviously, the Satmar community, the Hasidic community at large, is a theological community. You have some Christian friends who love Israel and the Jewish people. Uh, apart from obvious superficial differences in attire and food and language and so forth, what would you say are some major theological differences between Hasidic beliefs and something that an evangelical Christian would believe? Um, before I get to the theological, let's talk about uh, pragmatic. Okay. Like what we do differently. That is huge, right? As we all know, um, Christians, they emphasize faith over yeah. practice. So, uh, and the Jews have kept all the practices. Like, for example, the laws of Kashrut is a prime example. Yeah. So, Kashrut being the dietary laws. Right, yeah. So, my understanding is that the official Christian doctrine is that that has been abrogated, that is no longer necessary in the age of Jesus. Right, and right. under the New Covenant. Correct, under the New Covenant, right. Those, those yeah. So this is just one yeah. example yeah. of, uh, Judaism would insist that, no, this is major. This is the thing that God wants us to do. And so one, one of the major differences between Christianity in general and Judaism is that Judaism tends to be a practice-oriented religion. Um, so in Judaism, if you do it, you're, okay, you're good. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it doesn't care. We don't care what you believe in, mm. as long as you practice it properly. Now, it's not exactly true, but to an extent, it is true. Okay. You know, compared to Christianity, I would say it is the case because in Christianity, like I said, my understanding—you can correct me if I'm wrong—but mm-hmm. my understanding, especially Protestant Christianity, the emphasis is on faith for sure, rather than on good deeds. There's definitely an emphasis on faith, and then good deeds should follow that. Right. Uh, for sure, where what you're describing doesn't seem like near the emphasis on faith. It's more make sure you're doing right. the right thing. So there is an element of faith. Now, yeah. there is the Maimonidian, I don't know how to pronounce that word, but you know Maimonides, right? Maimonides, yeah. How do you say Maimonidian? Maimonidian. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make an adjective out of it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So the Maimonidian principles, there's 13 principles that Maimonides mm-hmm. um, proffered, yeah. that, you know, put forth that you must believe in or else you are not a proper Jew. Oh, wow. Okay, okay. yeah. So um, so one of them, you know, some of them are, um, are belief in one God, um, belief that God is single, and he mm. was probably alluding to the Trinity there. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. can't believe in the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and a belief in the coming of the Messiah mm. and so forth. So, uh, but, but it's important to note, however, that Maimonides is, only lived 13th century, I don't know exactly, but yeah. 12th century, something like that. So up until then, there was no, you know, um, articles of faith right. in Judaism. Right. So it was basically practice-oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, yeah, so. 
Yeah, let's let's talk about the Talmud. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned it several times in our interview today. Uh, this is something that I think most of our Gentile Christian friends are unaware of, mm-hmm. is especially the importance of the Talmud when it comes to um, the average religious Jewish community. Can you can you tell us what the Talmud is and how important is this is this text for the community? Yeah, good question. So the Talmud consists of two parts. There's the Mishnah and there's the explication of the Mishnah. So the Mishnah is, is a uh, compilation of laws and there's also some stories and things of that nature um, that basically tells the Jew how to behave. Mm. The Mishnah also includes a lot of differences of opinion as to how things should be done or how, th- or how things were done. Mm-hmm. Um, but, they, but it was very brief and it was meant to be memorized mm. orally. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, oh, so many of the people who, like the disciples of that era who attended these yeshivot, these schools, they had to memorize these long mishnayot. So eventually what happened is, um, due to the brevity of, the, of, these, of this uh, work, some of the people didn't understand what they even meant over generations that succeeded. Yeah, certain and words therefore, keep right, their meeting, exactly. other words So there was dispute meeting, yeah. as to what, what the Mishnah meant. Mm. And so this is where the Gemara, which, is, which literally means the um, complement, with an E, complement, but completes the Mishnah. Okay. This is where the Gemara comes in. And so the Gemara, together with the Mishnah, forms the Talmud. So the okay. Gemara essentially explains, explicates, um, resolves apparent controversies, mm. Okay. So all of that stuff is done in the Gemara. So it's a huge, huge, huge um, work. There's like literally hundreds, many of hundreds of, of dafim, which is um, pages wow. in the Talmud. Yeah. And um, yeah, if you study the daf a day, it would take you over seven years to complete it. Wow. How crucial is the Talmud in Jewish thought, thinking, and belief today? Right, that, that, yeah, that was your question. So, so um, very crucial. Because what we have nowadays is called the Shulchan Aruch, which is what officially defines Jewish law. Mm. But that is based primarily on the Talmud. Okay. So the Talmud preceded it by many centuries. But mm-hmm. for many years, there wasn't an official um, uh, work that specifically focused on Jewish law. Because the Talmud includes a lot of other stuff as well. Okay. So it's a lot of Agadah, which is like stories and custom and and of course resolving controversies and talking about it's it's a discourse mm. the talmud is not a law book it's a it's it's written in a discursive way in other words there's a conversation going on mm-hmm. there's a question there's an answer a question so this could be confusing to a lot of people and it's difficult to actually follow um and it takes a lot of um a lot of study a lot of study and you have to be an intellectual of sorts because it's it's abstruse in a way a gemara cop <laughs> it's a Yiddish term that you have a mind of a Gemara, like wow. you're able okay. to follow and to ask questions and 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 answer them, etc. Okay, so yeah. So when when I grew up in small town Indiana, uh, I grew up in a Gentile family, Gentile friends. I thought wrongly that religious Jewish communities were just studying the Bible, the text of Scripture, mm-hmm. for most of the day. Uh, but then I learned that's not really the case. That they're, not at all. Not at all. Not okay. at all. So, but what are they studying? Are yeah, they studying you, the Talmud? You'd actually be surprised that the study of Scripture is not not only is it not done, but it's actually downplayed. It's de-emphasized. And why is that? 
Good question. Why is that? There was a movement in the Jewish religion. It was called the Karaim. Have you heard of them? Yeah, the Karaites. Karaites, right. So the Karaites emphasize scripture. The Karaites are considered a renegade movement, mm. right? Because they ultimately rejected the rabbinic teachings. And, and so rabbinic Judaism basically um, eschewed anything associated or anything that reeks of Karaism, mm, <laughs> right? Interesting. And so they did not want to also, um, so they did not want to, they made a conscious decision of de-emphasizing scripture. Another uh, reason for de-emphasizing scripture is because the Haskalah movement also. The Enlightenment. Did, uh, the Enlightenment, yeah. So the Enlightenment sought to go back to the basics and um, there was a thing, there was a thing called the Digduk movement, which is the grammar, you know, emphasizing Hebrew grammar. Mm. And those people, again, were not, you know, they did not have the best of reputation in terms of observing tradition. And so traditional Jews, they made a conscious, deliberate decision to not study scripture. So to answer your question, no, scripture is not a thing, other than the Pentateuch, of course. So the Pentateuch, which is the uh, the Torah, the Torah, yeah. that of course is studied, that is read in the Torah, read in the synagogue every week. So that 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 is emphasized. But in terms of the Navi and the Ksuvim, you know, the, the writing and the prophets, most modern day Jews, meaning Hasidim and Haredim, are exposed to that when they read the Haftarah each week okay. at the synagogue, and that's it. So that's if it's it. not in the Haftarah then they don't know about it. Okay, so what I'm hearing you say is that uh, this is very different from most evangelicals who might have a daily Bible reading plan, right? They they start off their morning or they end their day with reading some portion of the Bible. Right. Whereas our Jewish friends are not necessarily doing that. They might read the Bible, but they're primarily reading the Talmud, which, mm-hmm. correct me if this is a wrong understanding of the Talmud, but I've often heard it described as a commentary on the scriptures. It is an explanation of the scriptures, or is it much more, here's how to live Jewish life? Yeah, I wouldn't say it as a commentary on the scriptures. Okay. It, it, it does cite scriptures, okay. but only when it seeks to explain a certain practice. Okay. So the Talmud has a tendency of attributing practices after the fact, really, to certain verses in the scripture. So it'll say, oh, why do we do so-and-so? Because there is a verse that says so-and-so. So when it comes to making these explanations, yes, it will cite scripture. But I wouldn't say that it's primarily a, an explication, an, ex- an exegesis okay. of the scripture. Okay, very good. In Protestant Christianity, for sure, uh, we place a big emphasis on sharing our faith mm-hmm. with the rest of the world. You may have heard the term evangelism mm-hmm. before. That's not such a big deal in the Jewish community, except for maybe one sect. Right. And so, is that true? Evangelism isn't emphasized at all, right? right. It's, it's not about getting Correct. Gentiles to live a certain way. Um, yeah, and, and this goes to the heart of Judaism, really, because, uh, first of all, in the Talmud itself, it says that if somebody comes to us, meaning the Jewish people, and they want to convert, we should actually discourage them from doing so. And... You might ask, why would any religion say that? And I don't have a definitive answer to this. I, I'm not sure why, but I suspect it has something to do with the fact that by the time the Talmud was written, Christianity had already blossomed you know, and taken blossomed, off. Correct, and they didn't want to infringe on the territory of Christianity. In fact, certain parts of the Talmud are, are redacted out of the present-day volumes. Like there are sections that talk about Jesus 
that are not in the modern editions of the Bible. And of they, the Talmud. And they took they took those sections out in order Correct. not to offend. Correct. In order to not to offend their Christian um, host cultures. Yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So there was the you know there was the censor was I think was a thing you know after the printing press was invented that had to be censored by the whoever did the censoring. Yeah. And if they didn't like a certain portion of the bio, of the Talmud. They would not permit the Jewish printing press to print it. it, Okay, interesting. We're going to take a quick break on the Tove podcast. When we come back, I want to dive a little bit more into the religious beliefs of the Hasidic community. Absolutely. We'll be right back on the Tove podcast. Since 1887, Life in Messiah has helped Christians understand the Jewish roots of our faith and God's ongoing commitment to His people. We teach that anti-Semitism is inconsistent with biblical faith, and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which includes her spiritual renewal as well as physical safety. In all we do, our priority is to share the gospel message. Connect with us at lifeinmessiah.org. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Evangelism is a very important topic. Uh, Bible reading is an important topic for the evangelical community. But probably the most important topic is the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the Hasidic view of the Messiah. Let's back up for a minute. Yeah. First, the Jewish view on the Messiah. Sure. The Jewish view on the Messiah, of course, is that the Mashiach has yet to come, right? So the Jews don't believe in Jesus. They believe that we're still waiting. Um, Well, I guess that would depend on if you're a Jewish believer in Jesus or not, because there's a... Right. A segment of the Jewish community who absolutely believes right. that Jesus is the Messiah. We've interviewed right. several of yeah, the friends here. but Small minority. Yeah. Small minority, yeah. but, but by and large. Mainstream Judaism. Mainstream Judaism, right. yeah. Yeah. Does not subscribe to the view that Mashiach has yet to come. And uh, the Lubavitchers, by the way, they believe that their Rebbe was the Mashiach, whatever that means. Yeah. We're going to leave that aside for now. But as far as the Satmar culture, which I, you know, which I feature in my book— as they're concerned, they, they have the prevailing Haredi view of messianism, which is that we're still waiting for him. Okay. There is some disagreement as to when is he going to come? What does he look like? What is he trying to accomplish? Are we all going to go to Israel, for example? Yeah. Are we going to actually, I mean, everyone believes that the temple is going to be rebuilt, but right. in what form and what shape? What is going to be, is going to be electricity in the new temple? You yeah. know? Questions like this. So there's no clarity on these, on these topics. Because, you know, obviously our modern society is so far removed from how things were back then, back when the belief in Messiah was first instituted. Sure. Which was immediately after the destruction of the Second Temple, right? So that uh, there's no update and there's no uh, clear definition of what we are expecting. But in broad strokes, I would say that we're expecting of some type of restoration of the Temple, return to Zion, you know, that doesn't mean that you're a Zionist because Satmar rejects Zionism, right, by the way. Right, but, uh, but yeah, we, it, is in our, it is in the Jewish prayer every day, return to Zion. And the, the restoration of the Davidic um, a monarchy. Yep. So, yeah, there would be a descendant of David, of David. who would yep. actually assume the throne. Um, so all of that is within the belief of, the, of Haredim in general and Satmar's in particular. Yeah. Yeah, I should note, one, one more thing is, and I kind of alluded to, this earlier, which is that Satma rejects Zionism. Yeah, so, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, it's r- really odd sometimes to see religious Jewish people 
protesting the state of Israel. We see that sometimes in New York City. We also see it sometimes in Israel happening. And of course, uh, opponents or people who really hate Israel will sometimes use those photos of those right. religious Jewish folks to say, see, Jewish people don't even like their own state, uh-huh. and it's kind of twisted. Right. But what's their reasoning for not supporting yeah. the state of Israel? So this is a thing that is that is specifically associated with Satmar. Mm. By Joel Teitelbaum, he's the one who first, um, you know, first started this. And his reasoning, his rationale was that it is against God and it is against Jewish belief to grab power mm. before Mashiach comes, before mm-hmm. Messiah comes. So since we are still waiting for the Messiah, therefore, I'm talk- talking here what Joel Teitelbaum would say, yeah. we're still waiting for Mashiach, therefore we cannot take the initiative into our own hands, into political initiative, political self-determination. Self, uh, yeah. So that is the main thing. But there's another element, which is that the Zionist movement was mainly put forth by secularists. By secular, by yeah. By people who were, in That's fact, right. atheists in That's some right. cases. We did a two-part and, series here on the Tove podcast on the rebirth of Israel. Right. And one of the things that we highlighted were these waves of immigration, primarily from Eastern Europe, of like these Russian uh, agrarian folks uh-huh. who just wanted to make a better life for themselves and get away from the persecution. Right, and they were highly secular. Highly secular. Right. Sometimes there was an influential um, Zionist uh-huh. who may have been religious involved, but right. primarily these folks right. just wanted a better land. Correct. Hugely secular. And so you think that's also a reason Absolutely. why the religious say, well, mm-hmm. this can't be good. It comes from those Correct. secular folks. So in Satmar... And in Satmar in particular, there's a concept called Hishabrus Lirasharim. Wow, that's a tough one. <laughs> which, is, which is associating with the wicked. Ah. And in Satmar, it's a big thing. You're not supposed to, this is like part of the Satmar doctrine, which is you cannot be friends with somebody who is wicked. And so they define wicked, obviously, if you don't believe, you don't practice, you're a Russia. Um, so, so wait, does that include Gentiles too? Like what? No, because no. you're okay. not obligated. Ah, okay. But if you're Jewish and you don't practice, I'm especially obligated. if you're violating one of the three oaths, which is not taking the political initiative before the Mashiach comes, mm. it's called the three oaths. Okay. Okay. And so, in, and so in the Satmar viewpoint, only the Messiah should establish Israel. That's right. It is in the Talmud that God abjured us in three oaths, two of which are that not to use force to, to make an aliyah in mass, and not to um, rebel against the nations. Okay. So, according to Satmar doctrine, you know, establishing political sovereignty, you're rebelling against the nations. Okay. According to Satmar theology, how does one please God? How is God pleased through obeying His commandments? Okay. Um, which would include what? Which would include everything in the Torah, everything in the Shulchan Aruch. We talked about the Shulchan Aruch earlier. Yeah. So that is a definitive, you know, the definitive body of what you may and may not do and what you are commanded to do. And it defines exactly how to do it, when, in what form, etc. So the Shulchan Aruch is considered, ever since the um, Jewish reform movements who, who sought to abrogate the Shulchan Aruch, the Haredi movement has in turn espoused it as a definitive form of orthodoxy. Okay. The way modern Haredim look at it is, if, if you want to know what's orthodox, what's the correct way of worshiping and the correct way of believing, they refer to the Shulchan Aruch. Mm. Which is, by the way, a work of a person named uh, Rabbi Joseph Karo in, I believe, in the 15th or 16th century. So it's about 500 years old. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Okay. When it comes to 
heaven, hell. Uh, what would the Satmar community believe is the way to heaven or the way to hell? How does one get to be with God after they die? Is there a sense of life after death? Of course, life after death is, of course, a major tenet. It is in the Maimonidean 13 principles. It's called Olam Haba, mm-hmm. the world to come. Um, and so, yeah, so that is a belief. But how to get there? Through practice. Through practice. Yes. Good deeds. Correct. And, and good deeds specifically obeying the Taryag Mitzvot, the 613 commandments, um, as, of course, explicated and elaborated by the rabbinic Judaism. Um, many of them are now no longer applicable since we no longer have the temple. Right. But for those that are still applicable, one must obey them all. And, of course, if you transgress, there's a way to, to repent, so that's fine, and you will still be entitled to Olam Haba. Now, you mentioned there's a way to repent, which means you know to turn away from transgression, mm-hmm. but how about atone? What is the view of atonement within the Satmar community? If Yom Kippur. It, okay, so Yom Kippur. Yes. So uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Day of Atonement, what's the typical practice on Yom Kippur for the Satmar community? So it is a day of fast. It is a day of prayer. It's a very grave and somber kind of day. And, um, and so the belief in, in Judaism is that itzumo shal yom mechaper, the very day atones. So the, no, you don't have to do anything. Just the day itself, the fact that you are traversing that day in the calendar, that atones your sins. Even if I don't fast? Apparently, yes. Apparently, okay. Yes. Interesting. Now, of course, if you don't fast, then obviously you can't be a, a sinner. I'm not saying you can't, but that wouldn't be apropos to still sin and actually ask for repentance and forgiveness. But assuming that you are uh, resolving to not sin anymore, not transgress, the very day, the very fact that you're experiencing that day, that atones for your sins. Okay. So I, I know you're, ask, you're asking me that question from the perspective of Christianity. Which right, is, exactly. You have to believe in a yeah. know, in Jesus. And- so. But, um, yeah, That's by right. contrast, in Judaism, it is the day. The day yeah, itself. and what I want to get at there is something within Christianity called the assurance of salvation. Mm-hmm. So the New Testament teaches, perhaps you're familiar, that if we place our faith in Yeshua, who we believe to be the Messiah, then we can be assured that we have forgiveness of sins based on his sacrifice. Is there a sense of assurance because of this day? You're saying that just because I fasted, it's the day that's providing me the assurance. I mean, God is ultimately doing it. But is there an assurance or am I just hoping that I'm going to be accepted? Yeah, very good question. Um, Yes, there is a view. And there is a Mishnah that actually answers your question, which is, Kal Yisrael yesh lahem chelak which is every Israelite slash Jew has a portion, has a an allotment in the world to come. So it's guaranteed, basically. So as long as you identify as part of the community, so if you leave, you might not qualify. Uh-oh. Right? <laughs> so, but as long as you are part of the social cohesion of the community, you're an Israelite, you're a Jew, um, you, are, you have a part, you have a slot. <laughs> it's guaranteed. You have a reservation. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And so I think that the average Jew, the average uh, religious Jew does not, Really, is not really bothered by that question because you're guaranteed even if you transgress. So salvation is guaranteed by virtue of being part of the community. So that's a short answer uh, to your question. 
But to elaborate a little further, um, it's not something that is thought of a lot. Like it's just not like I, like I said earlier, it's practice is the focal point of Judaism. You got to do things. Yeah. And salvation is it's just automatic. It's not a thing that is uh, consciously thought about. It's okay. just do the right thing. There is no uh, exact parameters for this. But mm. if you are if if you have too many sins, maybe you'll go temporarily to to hell. So to kind of purge your soul before you can go into the world to come. Mm. So there's some type of confusion as to exactly what hell is and whether it's experienced before the world to come. And what exactly is the world to come? Is it, is it an experience tempor- temporarily here on this earth? Mm-hmm. Or is it something uh, in the afterlife? Or is it something in the future after Mashiach comes? So there's a lot of differences of opinion there. But suffice it to say, it's a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> okay? yeah. It's a good thing. And everyone has um, a place. Everyone is guaranteed. Everyone yeah, has a place. Th- in that it. seems to be a major difference between what the Christian community is thinking, where like the most important thing is for someone to secure their eternity because the Bible teaches that we're on this earth for such a short time compared to eternity. uh, And what we, what we do, what we believe here on earth matters so much. So that's a fascinating difference that that's certainly not the way that our religious Jewish friends are thinking. They're thinking creed and deed and the Olam Haba takes care of itself. I know know that Martin Luther really struggled with this question. Mm. Because, you know, I'm a, I am a student of history and I like to read about religion specifically. And uh, yeah. I, I'm very fascinated about Martin Luther. And I know that he was tortured, like literally anguished by the question of how can I assure my own salvation? Mm. And he was troubled by that. And that's part of what led him to his, to his own reformation, to the, uh, to, you know, the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. But, but yeah, that's not a Jewish thing. Yeah, interesting. From, from my experience. Yeah. Well, I think that's very helpful to know. Uh, about our Jewish friends. I mean, the whole concept of salvation, in, in, I mean, in Hebrew, would be Yeshua. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing. Like, nobody talks about it. How do I get saved? Like, how do I? It's, it's just not a thing. It's just not a thing. Not yeah. a thing, no. Okay. What's going through a Jewish mind when they hear the word Jesus mm-hmm. or when they're invited to step into a church? Because it's not the same thing that's going through the mind of our Gentile friends. Right. Haredi Jews that I know of, and I obviously I grew up Haredi, they know pretty much nothing about Christianity. If, if you asked, if you walked up to someone and asked them, um, you know, be devil's advocate for a minute, right? Tell yeah, me, yeah. what is Christianity all about? They wouldn't know. They just don't know anything about Christianity. And so it's very hard to oppose something that you don't even know about. You don't even know about. Yeah, and so you're asking me, like, why would they be... Uh, why would they object to it? Why don't you study it more or find out more about it? And the answer is people people like inertia. They like to maintain the status quo of what they've been doing in the past and what our, my ancestors have been doing. And most Jews, the reason they're Jewish and the reason they reject Christianity is because their ancestors were Jewish. And this is the way we've done things for generations. And yeah. this is the way I personally have been doing things for the past who knows how long. Yeah. And so if you try to approach them and try to convince them, it just doesn't resonate because just that's not what they do, yeah. and it's not what they believe. And so it's not like they're seeking the truth. You yeah. know what I mean? There's very few people out there who are seeking the truth, whatever that may be. And so for most people, the overwhelming majority of people, they content themselves with what yeah. what is rather than idealizing what, what how things should be. Yeah, and what you just said there is actually what Scripture teaches, that in and of ourselves, no one seeks God. We are much more prone mm-hmm. and content 
to just do what's comfortable for us. It's not within our human nature to just try and seek God. We need to have, right. in my opinion, that prick of the spirit Correct, yeah. in order to reach out for yeah. God. There's got to be some, a lot of people who come to faith, as you would call it. There's some type of event, right? A traumatizing event. Sometimes. That yeah, sometimes, right? Yeah. Other times, we hear from testimonies that there was just this hole, this this void, right? And and people try to fill it with everything else. Right. You know, uh, drag sucks and rock and roll. Mm-hmm. But I believe that God's created us so that the only relationship that can fill that void is with God himself. Right. Yeah, but I want to touch on the question mm-hmm. asked. You mentioned anti-Semitism. Do you want me to talk yes, about that? Yes, sorry. I, I took us off a no. different road. Let's right, touch, right, yeah. help, uh, our, help our, specifically, the Christian viewers understand. We, we might have some people out there who are, who are listening or watching us, of course, who are not Christian. But help us understand the anti-Semitism part of it. Yeah, so the, I'll give you an interesting answer to that. I mean, this is my take on it, at least. And and that is that I think the concept of anti-Semitism as being still alive, yeah. so to speak, still, still relevant in these days, is is more, um, has more currency among liberal Jews than among Karadim. Okay, what, among, do you mean, what do you mean by that? Meaning that Jews who are more assimilated to the American culture, like they mingle with the mainstream, they're more aware, they're more exposed okay. to incidences of anti-Semitism, if there is any, right? Yep. Whereas people who are insular, like the culture that I cover in my book, the Satmars, the Haredim, et cetera, they, uh, they, first of all, they, ne- they never experience it because almost all their interactions are within the community. Okay, remember, Haredi culture insulates itself deliberately yeah. from the mainstream. Yeah. So yes, there's some interaction, but... What you said earlier speaks to this, and I've said this on the Tove podcast before, that if I were to approach your average Haredi guy, mm-hmm. they wouldn't know anything about Jesus right. or the New Testament or Christianity. Right. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the Jewish people are classified today as an unreached people group for that reason, which is shocking and should be shocking to us that the very people that brought Christianity to the world, mm-hmm. you know, as a group of Jewish people, we right. read about them in the New Testament, are today considered unreached. Right. And um, that just, uh, it saddens me. I have some commentary on that. Yeah, please. <laughs> which is that, and you, you basically answered this question yourself, because they are the ones who gave rise to Christianity. Yes. And so the message primarily, the gospel with a capital G, it's supposed to be conveyed to the nations, not to the very people who are already experiencing this religion, right? Not quite. Who are Okay, so here's what Paul wrote in Romans 1.16. Right. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, not ashamed of the good news. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, right? Whether Jewish or Gentile, male or female, rich or free, or slaves, whatever it is, rich or poor. So he's not ashamed of it. And then he wrote, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. Right. So Paul actually believed that the gospel was of priority to the Jewish people. So then you say, okay, well, he said that, but did he just mean a historical priority? Did he just mean like it went to the Jews and now it's supposed to go to the Gentiles? And you follow Paul throughout the whole book of Acts. Where do you think he goes first into every single city throughout the book of Acts? To the synagogue. synagogue right. And he's telling and he's having discussions with Jewish communities, mm-hmm. some of whom are very much opposed to what he's doing. Right. Others received him and the message and wanted to discuss it further. Yeah. So it's not the case that you're supposed to bring the gospel just to the nations. Mm-hmm. Yes, to the nations, 
but to the Jew first. Yeah, you have a good point there. Um, yeah. So, so that's why life. That's why life and Messiah <laughs> yeah. exists. Yeah, yeah, you have a right? good point. Um, is, is because we are sharing God's heart for the Jewish people, and we want the Jewish people to especially know that their Messiah has arrived. Right. The same Messiah we believe spoken of by the Hebrew prophets, their prophets. And we believe ultimately that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. But, but there was a point in the evolution of Christianity, within two, three hundred years of the advent of, of Jesus Christ, that a conscious decision was made to make it easier for Gentiles to convert and to kind of dilute, if you will, the Jewish law in a way. Like, for example, the abrogation of circ- circumcision. That mm-hmm. was a conscious decision that was made. And so, 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 yeah, so to a certain extent, the way I see it, at least, is that the gospel was meant to, be, was meant to bring people into the fold rather than to... Uh, to exclude somebody. Yeah, rather than to try to transform the Jewish people themselves. No, that, so, there's no doubt about it. That the gospel, which we might also say the arrival of the new covenant, mm-hmm. is open to Israel and the nations. Whereas something like the Mosaic Covenant was specifically for Israel, no doubt about it. Right. But I think that I would just put a slight difference on that in that it, it's not in order just to simply open up and not appeal to Jewish people. It's still especially supposed to appeal to our Jewish friends, but also the world at large. Right. And that just has to do with what's what I call a distinction between the covenants, mm-hmm. the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant, right. completely distinct. It's actually the most downloaded episode on the Tove podcast today mm-hmm. uh, because it's really important. So the way you see it is the Mosaic Covenant applies It was made specifically to Israel. to the Israelites. Now, where... the New Covenant was made with Israel, Jeremiah chapter 31, but it includes provisions for partakers. Mm-hmm. And so the partakers are only subject to the New Covenant. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. Okay. In fact, the book of Hebrews teaches us that the Old Covenant, which is the Mosaic Covenant— has faded away, and it could never accomplish what the new covenant can. Right. And so it's the interesting. supersedes the uh, old, the You might say that it supersedes, although the, the problem has become now something called supersessionism, which is that Gentiles, because there's so many of us now mm-hmm. who are partaking of the new covenant, mm-hmm. believe that we now overtake the Jewish people, or we've replaced Israel in and God's plan. that's something you reject. That's something we absolutely reject. I right. teach all the time on it here on the yeah. Tove podcast. Uh, God is faithful. He will keep his promises to Israel, just as he'll keep his promises to the nations. So this is a good segue, though, into our final topic of today. Uh, Just really enjoyed our conversation. I thank you for your openness. (laughs) Thank you for having me here. Yeah, I'm sure that many of our our listeners and viewers are probably wondering this as well. But you grew up Satmar Mm -hmm. for the first 19 years of your life. And then you decided to step away from the Satmar community. Now, that's been over two decades ago, as you mentioned. And so what are your beliefs today? Uh, do you still believe in the God of Israel? Uh, do you believe in a plethora of gods? What, how would you describe it? Yeah, very good question. So first of all, I have the utmost respect and admiration for the— I'm a, I'm a, I'm a student of history, by the way. Mm-hmm. I did major in history in college, and, and as, that's one of my favorite mm-hmm. subjects. And so I studied the history of mankind and philosophies and movements and all of that stuff. And, and to me, the concept of monotheism is an absolutely fascinating subject. Mm-hmm. And the Jews were basically the inventors of monotheism, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, um, I know, because 
the Jews have proven themselves to be an enduring and helpful and uh, movement that has benefited mankind in a great deal. So first of all, monotheism obviously is, 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 is what I support. Um, ethical monotheism, okay, so that has a distinction because, because in polytheism there were certain practices that monotheism deliberately rejected. Mm-hmm. So not just beliefs, but it's also practices as well. Now, with respect to... Um, with respect to theology, I do not, broadly speaking, I do not subscribe to traditional theological views. Like, mm-hmm. I'm a secular person myself. Mm-hmm. But, and this is an important but, I have the utmost respect for religious people and religions in general because I believe that a society cannot function well without religion, without structure, mm-hmm. and without moral precepts. And it has proven it's the secular world has... As, has time and again proven itself incapable of instilling moral values in its people. Mm. That's just a fact. Mm. So whether Bill Maher or whoever is preaching, <laughs> whatever, whether they like it or not, it's just it's a, it's a track record that is proven again and again and again. If I'm in a situation of need, I'd much rather be around religious people than secular people. Even if that I disagree with them, yeah. theologically, they're better people to be around, to be to befriend. Yeah. So so yeah. So that is. Um, and and in recent years, when I first left my community, I was very liberally inclined, and I kind of like in a, in a way I mocked religion, and I was very much like a un- Christopher Hitchens type. Yeah, of exactly. Yeah. I was that kind of guy. Yeah. But in the last decade, I have moved back to appreciating what religions and and specifically, but also but tradition. And conservatism in general has to offer to society. Sure. And and so yeah. So uh, so in that sense, I don't consider myself personally religious, mm-hmm. but I like to associate with religious people, which <laughs> explains why I'm here. Even which is why you're here. Which is yeah. why I'm here. Yeah. And, and so like ten years ago, if you invited me here, I probably would have declined. Ah. But now I actually like it because I like this movement, mm-hmm. like Life and Messiah. I think it's a good movement mm-hmm. because, and I'm also, by the way, I'm flattered <laughs> that there are Christians who appreciate. The uh, the origins of their faith because Absolutely. Judaism is really the origins of Christianity, and so uh, you know one of the things that I learned in history is that uh, the Protestant movement, which I admire a great deal. By the way, I am an admirer of uh, Martin Luther, even though he even though he wrote a couple of books. Yeah, even though he wrote a couple of books, I still like him. <laughs> okay, okay. But um, the Protestant movement actually sought out Jews because they wanted to learn Hebrew. Mm. And that's something that I think is, he was really spot on on that mm. because you cannot study the, I'm a strong believer in that, you cannot study a, uh, a primary source without knowing the language. Mm. To wrap up our conversation, one final question, kind of a pinpoint question. Uh, C.S. Lewis is famous for, I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said this. Uh, his quote is, we must come to some kind of a conclusion about Jesus. And I'm sure your conclusions about Jesus are probably different today than they were maybe 10 years ago, mm-hmm. than they were 20 years ago. Correct, yeah. Uh, so just because you have this viewpoint today on this set doesn't mean it's going to be your viewpoint five years from now or whatever it might be. But C.S. Lewis said that, you know, given the New Testament account of Jesus, uh, either the guy is Lord or he's a complete lunatic who went around and did all this stuff, proclaiming himself to be C.S. God. C.S. Lewis said that? C.S. Lewis said that, right? I, he's, I yeah, so I he's Lord, lunatic, or liar. Yeah. Which of those categories no, would I you place I, him I, in? I, don't, I totally uh, re, uh, reject that statement. I don't think it's either one. 
I think he was a rabbi, a very sagacious or sagacious. How do you say that? Well, you be on okay. me. <laughs> <laughs> a sage, like a smart okay. person. Yeah. And he contributed to mankind a great deal in a positive way. Um, he attempted to reform Judaism. This is how I see him as the historical Jesus. And the Jews rejected him, obviously. Some. Some, <laughs> some yeah. <laughs> and uh, so where was it? Yeah, so I don't think he was a lunatic. Mm -hmm. Okay, he was very intelligent person to the extent that, you know, we don't have his original writings. So there isn't, there's a lot of debate about the historical Jesus. Sure. Know? So yeah. the to the extent that we know anything about him, this is what he, this is what we know, that he was a smart person. He went around, he preached, he attempted to reform Judaism. And uh, so he's not a lunatic. What was the other thing you said? Well, he um, could he could be a liar. So I the new characterize him as such. He's not a liar. So so basically, the New Testament you would say does not have accuracy in terms of its portrayal of Jesus. Um, to the extent that it was, in as much as it was written after he his passing, I think you know back then there was no written, there was no video, there was no recordings, mm -hmm. and so I. I don't subscribe to the inerrancy of it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's okay. all man written, so you know yeah. there must there would be mistakes in my opinion. So you have the greatest amount of respect for Jesus, Correct. but you're not to the point yet where you're going to cast him off as a complete fraud mm -hmm. or say that he is indeed the Messiah the Hebrew prophets wrote about. Correct. Yeah, I, wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't consider him the Messiah. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't consider him like holding any. Um, supernatural powers or mm -hmm. anything like that. I don't believe in the resurrection yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. But I believe that he was a great person. I would have loved to meet him <laughs> if he was yeah. around. Yeah. And, well, perhaps, you know. perhaps someday you will. Right. Jacob, thank you very much for our time together. Thanks for coming up to Chicago. Appreciate it. If you want to listen to previous episodes, hop on over to lifeandmessiah.org. Just click on that Tove podcast tab. And again, one more plug for this brand new author here. Jacob Gluck has just completed a book, which is available now on Amazon.com. It's called Hasidopedia. And if you are looking for information on the Hasidic people, specifically the Satmar community, this is the resource for you. I hope you'll go over to Amazon.com and purchase that right away. Until next time, Shalom.